Welcome back to the podcast, Deconstructing Alpha. I'm your host, Jeremy Van Arkel with Frontier Asset Management. In this podcast, we have timely and impactful interviews with prominent investment managers. Frontier Asset Management has a long history of researching and investing in actively managed mutual funds. And through this podcast, we seek to shine a light on the investment managers who run these mutual funds. These investment professionals need to stay on top of economic events, the political environment, and business trends worldwide. They also have to have in-depth knowledge of the individual businesses that drive our economy. In short, many of these investment managers that I've come across in my career are some of the most brilliant people that I've ever met. Frontier has broad access to these investment managers and their insights. And through this podcast, I share that access with you. Ultimately, this podcast is a sign of respect for the skill and intellect exercised by these managers. In this episode, we'll be discussing managing resilient portfolios that can endure multiple market environments with Adam Seuss of Yachtman Funds. For those of you who don't know who Yachtman is, they are a pillar of consistent return equity management, and they manage um, several mutual funds that are available to investors. Morningstar might categorize Yachtman as a large cap value manager, but they are so much more than this arbitrary moniker. Yachtman Funds has been around for 30 years and have endured and thrived through multiple market environments. We want you to know the secrets to achieving more consistent returns. So tune in and let's go inside Yachtman with Adam Seuss. As always, please stay on the podcast until the end to hear the important compliance disclosures for this podcast. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Seuss. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Really appreciate the invitation. So Yachtman has been around a long time. You know, I've been doing this for uh, 30 years, uh, working with portfolios of actively managed mutual funds. And Yachtman has shown up in our portfolios on and off for, uh, you know, probably over two decades. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, start with how old is the fund? uh, And then give us a little uh, brief uh, backstory of the fund and why it exists and, um, and, uh, you know, how you view the fund. Sure. So Yachtman Asset Management was founded in 1992. So we just very recently celebrated our 30th anniversary, which we are very proud of. There isn't too many boutique asset managers out there that have been together and investing for multiple decades and through multiple cycles and grown and protected capital, investor capital over that time while managing risk. We do it with a very small team of uh, of generalists. Uh, we're based in Austin, Texas. Uh, we try to think differently and focus a lot on risk management in our approach. We manage our flagship uh, large cap value fund uh, and have been doing that for the past thirty years. And uh, you know, it, it's been for us a a a key focus around. How do we protect and grow our clients' assets uh, over long periods of time and do it in a value-oriented investment fashion? Um, that's excellent. Every time I hear just a simple introduction to a fund, I always just, many questions come to mind. And I don't want to sidetrack too much here before we start, but there must be some intellectual capital that you guys have, like, I mean, after doing this for 30 years, you know, you, you relearn the same lessons over and over again, right? And, and and do you view that as an advantage in managing your fund? It does. I think it's helpful to have seen a lot 
uh, through multiple market cycles. You know, we've been in a very long cycle of this past 10 or 12 years with sort of one group of stocks or kind of stocks performing extremely well. And uh, sometimes it's it's hard to think back and say, oh, the great financial crisis is, was almost 15 years ago now. And uh, things uh, ha- haven't uh, moved quite as much as they have in, uh, si- since then. And so, you know, we throughout that time period, though, have stuck to kind of our core way that we invest. We are value oriented. We spend a lot of time focusing on price. We think price matters a great deal for returns. We also put a big emphasis on risk management and downside protection. For us, that that separates us from peers. And once again, you think about the history of the firm, having seen cycles and seen you know, stocks actually go down. Uh, it's an important reminder, just like we got another reminder in 2022, that risk and downside protection, uh, they actually do matter. And you do want a manager who focuses a lot on on risk. And it's a, a team that's been working together for a long period of time. I've been at the firm now for 10 years. Our other portfolio managers um, have been at the firm uh, for a very long time period as well. And I think over time, we've attracted an investor base who appreciates our patient long-term approach to investing. We're not trading in and out of stocks. We're buying individual businesses. And as you go through cycles, you just you start recognizing patterns. And that pattern recognition can be extremely helpful um, as because the world is always changing uh, to apply patterns that you've seen in, in previous cycles to what is happening today. Yeah. And so I, I was speaking recently with an investment advisor who we've been working with for um, maybe close to 30 years. And so this was a very experienced investment advisor. And and they made the comment that, you know, she, she, she you know, all, learned, you know, you're learning all the time. But really, you start to really learn uh, 20 plus years in, you know. And, and so it's very interesting that a lot of people invest with mutual funds and investment teams that maybe haven't seen multiple cycles. And, and this last cycle was 12 years, you know, it's like the cycles can be really long. So, so that's really good to know the, um, the um, history of of the team. Um, So, so if you could encapsulate sort of what it is you're trying to do for clients, you know, sure, the world has moved into this style box sort of thing. And everybody views funds as like components to portfolios. But, but really, all of us 30 years ago, or so we, we didn't start in that environment, right? We tried to make money for people, right? So, so mm-hmm. what? Do, what? Do, what? Do, how do you view the goal of the fund? First and foremost, our goal is to generate solid risk-adjusted returns over a full market cycle. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, first, as we just as you just mentioned, Jeremy, I mean cycles can be long. This one is for a value guy like myself it seemed uh, especially long yeah. uh maybe even longer than the 12 years at times but uh cycles are long term and we think that investing is a long term activity that's that's the core of it it's actually investing we're buying a piece of an underlying business we're not just trading a stock price on a piece of paper and so when we make an investment we want to make sure that we get a return from owning that business the underlying business itself and not what somebody's going to pay for it uh, six months later. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's, uh, really important. The second part of that is the risk adjusted returns. And so many investors, if, if they're pitching you their favorite stock, they immediately go to, well, I think I see all this, you know, this huge and massive upside and look at the potential return I could get if everything works out correctly. And, 
you know, you saw that in the last kind of 12 or 18 months uh, where some of the growthier stocks that investors were running into because they had huge runways and a big total addressable market. Well, it turns out to get a satisfactory rate of return in many of those investments, everything had to go perfectly. Not just above average, not just one out of a thousand good. They needed to be the best of the best in order to generate returns. And so we don't think it's enough just to look at what is the rate of return that you can expect, but also what is my what is my how am I going to protect risk investing in this business? Yeah. And we look at everything on that risk adjusted basis. And we don't look at risk from a you know overall portfolio, you know, statistical sense. It's an individual business from a bottom-up basis. And we prize things like predictability or stability. Or can I envision what this business is going to earn over the next two or three years and not have to make some forecast around how the world is going to look uh, 20 years from now as this, you know, the, some new upstart business supposedly grows into, you know, the next Microsoft or the next Apple. Yeah. And so we're, we're able to invest in companies that maybe the rate of return isn't quite as um, eye-popping as, uh, you know, others out there in the market. But we get a lot of safety and stability from investing in those. And then when you get a year like 2022, we're able to rotate out of those names just as everybody else is running towards them and actually go on the offensive and allocate additional capital to beaten down names uh, because we have that, that, that core of the portfolio that has a lot of that stability and predictability. So risk management, it just allows you to play a lot of offense when you know others are, are not. And that's really the time when a, a you know a, a, a team and a, a, a set of funds like Yachtman tends to do our best work is in those more difficult periods or off-market bottoms where, where that risk management finally shines through. Yeah, that's that's good to know because you know that you know when 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 I read all a lot of the things that are published today, you know we have a plethora of news. We're peppered with all sorts of research and news, and never before has there been more information. But I feel like the, all this information has has led to sort of a, almost a generation of speculators, right? And so people are, they, they, it's gotten to the point where they don't really care what they buy. They're just buying things uh, to gain access to certain kind of patterns or style boxes or, you know, and it's really just, they're just using instruments or securities to gain access to an exposure. And and that's remarkably different from a fundamental long-term investor that's trying to create lifelong wealth for their clients. I mean, the end goal for all this stuff is that your cl the clients in the end come out with more money, right? Mm. And then they and they endure and stay through multiple market environments. And, and so that's really good to hear that you know the bottom up, the fundamental, the uh, the security by security, um, and and um, and the risk management side of things. So that philosophically aligns with what Frontier is trying to do as well. And so um, so when we spoke last time, you kind of mentioned an interesting backstory about how you came to the fund. And so, um, you know, I think when you're at a big corporation and you're one of the thousand employees and you're assigned to pick large cap value stocks that are no different than the index <laughs> and you give a lot of presentations and things like that, you you know, they probably go around and uh, have a certain way in which they hire people to do that. So tell me your backstory and how you came to this fund, uh, having it be, you know, such a, uh, a, like more of a boutique fund and a more specialized experience. So tell me your backstory. 
Sure. So I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, went to school up there. I actually was got started uh, doing something unrelated to investing, thought I was going to go the startup software route. But I was always interested in the market. And as we went through the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, which is finding all these potential opportunities. You know, I was a self-taught value investor. Uh, you know, things were, to me, looked cheap, but I was also afraid I was missing something very obvious uh, since I didn't have, I wasn't in the business. And so I started an investment blog where I was just posting up research and analysis on the companies that I was finding. And it got to the point where it, it became much more of a hobby and and something I was spending nights and weekends on. So I decided to go back to business school, uh, got a full-time MBA, did an internship at uh, a, a very large a mutual fund complex and was excited to go back. But then it just so happened that I got an email from Steve Yachman, who's our CIO, who stumbled across my blog and just sent me an email out of the blue. And so just just very fortunate from a, a timing perspective. Yeah. You know, I like the idea that it was a boutique. I like the idea that it was a small team, that everybody at the firm was a generalist, and that you didn't get sort of stuck in a box of saying, you know, here's your 20 stocks to look at. And sure, you can know those 20 stocks extremely well, but but hey, you know, if you were the, you know, if your sector was was tech in 1999 or 2000, or probably, you know, more recently, the correct answer probably was you shouldn't have owned anything in those areas. And so, right. you know, for me, I really like the idea that, hey, this is a, a group of people who are very focused on picking stocks, that you had a lot of freedom and flexibility to look across uh, sectors and geographies and really try to just go where the value is. And so I joined, decided to join the firm. We launched a a new fund when I joined, which is more of a global small and micro cap fund. And then I've been increasingly helping out and added as a portfolio manager on our flagship funds. But the, but the key to me was just this is a a, a team of people who's uh, who aligns very well with my philosophy and is willing to think differently. You know, my career path was non traditional. Um, you know, I didn't come from a you know banking. Uh, then private equity, then switch to buy side type of very traditional path. But I think, you know, we've always just prized ourselves from thinking differently and using flexibility to to our advantage. And it shows in the way that that sort of I got here. It's the way that, um, you know, we constantly sort of look for for talent. And I think, you know, starting that blog was, and I, I sort of joke, is sort of the best value investment I, I ever did. Yeah, there you pay. go. Pay the pay the hosting fee to start that start that blog. Uh, it's far better than than any sort of resume could be. Yeah, that's that's a that's a a great analogy for investing. So um, we've as we've gone through this story so far, uh, we've you've pointed on a couple of points that I've made here about the uniqueness of your fund and firm, and and I'm going to kind of summarize them here, and then I want to maybe get drill into a couple of them. So. You know, I think the experience piece that you mentioned and the age of the fund and the ability or the history of having lived through multiple marketing cycles and seeing the same thing over and over again, um, you know, is invaluable to fund management. And I really do think, you know, 20 years is sort of the minimum. And and um, I think the part that you mentioned being flexible and not having to stick to a style box and it really enables you to better find opportunities that just kind of make your clients money at a reasonable level of risk. But then you mentioned these two other things that really stick out to me, right? And that's the risk managed and then the generalist piece. So can we touch on the risk management piece? So you you manage pretty much an equity portfolio. So how do you risk manage that? 
I think it starts with the individual business. So once again, this is not a you know top down uh, macro or or, or uh, statistical risk overlay. It's looking at an individual business and saying you know, and trying to answer the question, is this a good business that's likely to sort of compound underlying value over long periods of time? Now, there's some businesses that are able to do that in hindsight, but very hard to predict from from where you're sitting. And that's where the predictability comes in. And so we look at everything on a forward rate of return basis. And I can line up the portfolio and say, there's some securities in the portfolio that don't offer the overall highest rate of return, but because they're a very predictable, stable business, maybe they're a consumer staple brand that consumers are going out and buying every day, or a business that has recurring revenue, or is very unlikely to get disrupted by the latest uh, AI technology in the next several years, that predictability um, should, should be prized. And we can line that up against another security that maybe has some longer term challenges or there's some uh, questions about the business model, but we get it at an extremely attractive price where the rate of return is far higher. And the goal when we assemble the portfolio is try to get a combination across the portfolio and try to maximize the overall rate of return that we get from owning the business for the level of risk that we think that we're taking. And so we've been able to uh, hold up uh, against kind of the broad market by picking individual businesses, generally protecting capital uh, during difficult periods. And we would argue that our shareholders have taken less overall risk in putting up those returns. So risk management and kind of downside protection, it goes back to the idea of you know playing offense when everybody else is playing defense. But you can only really do that in our view if you have the flexibility to look across and find those true sort of idiosyncratic bargains. It's very hard to risk manage if you said, hey, you have to you have these 20 stocks, you have to pick from these 20 stocks because there's sometimes and at some valuations when the correct answer is you shouldn't earn zero. But very few managers are willing to say, hey, this sector, I don't see anything there I like. I'll just I'll just be zero. You know, many more th- thinking around, well, what is the index? Well, I need to probably be plus or minus a few percent. And I, 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 you know, for us, we end up with portfolios that look very different than any sort of index. And that is a big part of risk management. You know, having that flexibility to to pick the few standout bargains, pay good prices for them, uh, focus on predictability. It, uh, it serves us uh, very well and our clients very well during difficult periods. I think this is a difficult concept for like newer investors to understand is that you could be 100% invested, but one stock might be uh, have a, a profile that is a very consistent business model. That's a very safe business model, right? That like a, a beer company, right? <laughs> Beverages maybe, right? Mm-hmm. And they are not cyclical. They don't like swing largely with any particular sector and they don't swing largely with the economy. And that, and therefore, when the economy is not performing well or a sector falls out of favor, they actually have less downside. And and, and so, in a portfolio, you have even though you can be one hundred percent invested in stocks, it's the types of stocks that you own that define your downside. And I think that's a di- that you you just summed that up very well. And and um, I think I think it's a hard concept for people to understand. They say, well, I'm one hundred percent invested in stock, but 
those two managers could have a totally different downside profiles, even though they both have stock, because depending on the stocks they buy. I, I would say, you know, I would add one other point is, is um, well, two points really, but one is financial leverage. So you mentioned the cyclicality. That's a big component of how investors can really get caught off sides where they invest at the top of the cycle and then sing, things turn in a more cyclical business. And next thing you know, earnings have fallen 60, 70, 80, 90%. And the stock price you know, falls along with it. You're just not going to get that sort of big negative surprise in the the recurring revenue or more stable businesses. Uh, the other thing, though, is financial leverage and and debt. And so, you know, debt is a is basically just a magnifier in our view, but that's a magnifier on both upside and on downside as well. And so, we spent a lot of time looking at the businesses and their capital structure and saying, does the capital structure of this business match? the predictability and the cyclicality of the business. And you just get in scenarios all the time where investors say, well, look how cheap this business is. You know, I'm getting this, you know, free cash flow yield on my investment, but they have a significant amount of debt. And now you get in a situation like we're in today where interest rates have ridden, risen dramatically. We potentially are getting into a more difficult economic environment. And yeah, you might have ridden some very strong returns over the last couple of years, fueled by very low interest rate debt. But uh, the downside when things turn can be very dramatic. And the big thing that you're trying to do compounding wealth over long periods of time is avoid zeros, right? Yeah. And, and it, 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 long things multiplied yeah. by zero is still zero. And and debt is just one of those magnifiers uh, of returns. And so we're we're extremely allergic to companies that have uh, very significant leverage without some sort of corresponding backstop around, you know, their recurring revenue or hidden assets. I mean, there's at, at a certain price, you're willing to look at that, but by and large across the portfolio, these are very uh, competitively advantaged, strong businesses with great balance sheets that should be able to make its way through, you know, whatever difficult market environment. And that investing in those kind of businesses you can stack up two in the same industry side by side, one without debt and one with a ton of debt. Investors may get very different outcomes through a difficult part of the cycle, even though they're both, quote, you know, in the same industry or in the same business. I think this is a perfect time to touch on inflation. So if we're talking about risk, inflation impacts different businesses in a different manner, right? So some businesses can entirely pass through inflation and and maintain their sort of general sales patterns and profit margins. And some businesses are impacted heavily by inflation. And so um, it is interesting to me that when I look at the sort of the, the risk of long-term inflation, let's, let's one of the risks is inflation higher for longer, that the, we're going to be in sort of a four or 5% inflation environment for a couple of years. That's possible, right? And so in that environment, there should be, a, you know, are you focusing on trying to find, uh, I guess, what they call, you know, inflation resiliency, like businesses that can pass on prices? Is that a key component right now? I wouldn't say it's a, a key component in the fact that we don't have, we don't, we spend very little time sort of forecasting, you know, what is inflation going to be this quarter? Or, you know, what is the Federal Reserve going to do at this upcoming meeting? What we try to do, though, is look at each individual business and say, does it has the the characteristics of surviving whatever might happen in a particular outcome? 
And so we're not trying to top down and say, we think inflation is going to be high. Therefore, we should go seek out businesses that might go after that very specific uh, outcome of the world. We'd much rather own businesses that exhibit some of the characteristics that you said. May they have a competitive advantage. They have pricing power. Uh, they have very little way in uh, fixed assets, or maybe they're a direct beneficiary of inflation. When you think about more commodity or, or you know, energy-based uh, investments, but both at an individual company level as well as across the portfolio, the idea is to have uh, different aspects of the portfolio, maybe different aspects of an individual company that will do well across multiple market environments, and you want management teams that are willing and able to respond to the market environments that come that come at you. And so, you know, some, I think, investors are much more top-down oriented. They try to read as much as they can and divine, you know, when we're going to be in the recession and, and who specifically is going to benefit. We tend to be on the side of saying, on a bottom-up basis, our companies uh, are, are definitely above-average companies. They've experienced and been around, in many cases, for, for decades. They've been through multiple mar market cycles. And the management teams are willing to pull whatever strings necessary in order to succeed um, in whatever market environment that we end up that we end up in. Those are excellent points. And um, you know, we try to do that with our portfolio too. It's interesting that the the mutual funds that we tend to gravitate towards tend to have a, a similar view to the world uh, as we do. You know, multi we we speak a lot about multiple market environments, and that if we could build the portfolio sort of more like a battleship and it can go through a lot of different weather and we don't have to predict the weather as much right and and so an interesting um point on this risk management i'll just return to this risk management a bit here is that is that i i spoke with a different investment manager who did emerging market stat which felt like you could have a lot of blow-ups right if you were um investing in bonds and emerging markets you know the, they could default um and he said his most important risk management tool is the ability not to have to buy something that he doesn't understand or doesn't like. And I think a lot of the benchmark plus or the people that are trying to be benchmarks or they have specific little categories, they're stuck in that, right? Like I think that's an important piece that you mentioned, it'd be very hard to risk manage if you were had to be stuck in a box, right? And, and so that gets me to my second key point I wanted to talk about here is your generalist approach. And so while your fund seems to be categorized over time uh, by Morningstar in their arbitrary large value box, um, I, I don't think that's exactly what you are. And so can you touch on the generalist, how you're structured as a firm as a generalist, and how your fund can sort of be more of a general equity fund? Yeah, so I think you know the Morningstar style box. We we've been in quite a few of those boxes over yeah. time. Although we certainly have always considered ourselves to be fundamentally, you know, value investors and very value oriented. And so for us, you know, price price is a a huge component of what we do. But I think you know being a generalist has a, a, a ton of advantages. It's the way that you look at the world. Uh, you know, I've already used the example of being the tech analyst in '99 or 2000, and you know, unfortunately, you could probably look across your space and go to your boss and say, you know, I really don't think we should own anything in my uh, category or my sector. Here's the least worst thing that yeah. that I own, and that is just a not a good place to be when you think about 
investing and managing capital over the very long term. And so everybody at the firm is responsible for idea generation. Everybody has the freedom and flexibility to look and try to find the the very best investment opportunities that they can. And it just gives you a lot more perspective around what is out there. It's like when you're you're first starting out and you, you talk to your uh, I don't know, the very first management team that you ever go on uh, and you get to interview the CEO and you're have done all your work and you're extremely prepared and the CEO comes in and tells you all about the business and you're extremely excited about, uh, you know, he seems like he's on top of his game. And then, then you do your 50th meeting or 100th management meeting. And then you think back and say, you know what? Maybe that was like a C minus management team, yeah. but you ju- you just didn't have that perspective. And it's the same thing when you look across businesses. You, you can be extremely specialized and know everything there is to know about a given sector, but sometimes you just sort of miss the broader market opportunities. And so we, you know, have used that flexibility in the Yachtman Fund in in a whole host of areas. You know, at times we were willing to buy. Uh, high yield debt when high yield debt became attractive and we were getting equity like rates of return with much lower risk you know recently we have invested outside of the US in some select companies largely global businesses or businesses that have a big US presence or or US set of assets but because they happen to be domiciled or misclassified or, or just domiciled overseas they sell at a big valuation differential to U.S. peers, you know, we get attracted to you know family-run companies that maybe they're conglomerates that are in a number of different businesses, um, but they invest and allocate capital to where they see the best opportunity set, and we're just doing that as as investors, and you know, having that mindset, and and then also being willing to say, if we can't find anything to invest in, we're we're going to hold cash and wait for the opportunities. So having that. Uh, you know, ability to just, you know, say no a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a, a big part of, of successful investing um, is just to, to look at lots of different pitches and keep the bat on your shoulder and just say, I'm going to keep saying no until I get thing, something that I can understand where the downside is protected, where I get a good risk adjusted return. And then if so, I want to make it a concentrated position. And what that ends up with is a portfolio that looks wildly different than any sort of index. Yeah. But looking wildly different than any sort of index is often the best answer for the client, right? Because there's no alignment of some index to your client's goals. The client goal is independent of an index, right? And the client goal is they want to grow their money consistently through multiple market environments. And so um, a common theme that you mentioned in, in all of this, and I just want to highlight this uh, point, is that you've, you've mentioned management quite a few times, right? And so when I interview managers like you, we, we, we like to have a continued dialogue with the managers of our mutual funds. And we like to, we believe over time, you learn more and more and more. And, and it's hard to understand a fund without talking to the managers. And I think it's eye-opening to a lot of people who are trying to pick their own stocks or who are just using stocks as vehicles to gain access to some sort of exposure, like a sector or something or a trend, uh, that there are people out there that interview managers of companies. And that, that is a key part to success because you 
you know, what I hear over and over again is you need to find management teams that run these stocks, these businesses that can allocate capital well. Can you touch on that a bit? Sure. And it's one of the reasons why, if you look at the, the portfolio today, we have a, a bucket of the portfolio that is more of these family-run type of companies. And the reason is, is you talk to lots of professional managers and uh, you know they didn't necessarily found the business, but now they're the CEO. Some of them run the businesses extraordinarily well, and we certainly seek those out. But we go back to that beginning of we're investing for the long term. And if you have a family business that's been around for decades, they tend to make investments that may penalize short-term earnings, but create a lot of value in the long term. I mean, for a very long period of time, one of our largest positions was 21st Century Fox. And the Murdoch family had built that business from a very small newspaper company in Australia into kind of a global media conglomerate. They had a bunch of valuable IP assets. They had the broadcast networks. They owned, in our view, a bunch of sort of hidden assets at the time. They had a stake in Hulu. They had a large business in India that they were investing in dramatically that was penalizing short-term earnings. And But everybody sort of looked at the stock and said, well, the media space is difficult. And and reality is it has been. It's been a very difficult place to invest over the last five or 10 years. And also that the Murdoch family was always you know, focused on building empires. And guess what? Something changed. They decided to sell. And then there's a huge bidding war and a huge amount of value is unlocked uh, very quickly. You know, we have an investment today in, in a U-Haul. The U-Haul business, you know, do-it-yourself moving, the trucks that you see, you know, rolling down the highway pretty much anytime you drive anywhere, was a business that was founded in the all the way back in the 40s. It's still run by the the, the same family, uh, you know, passed down through the generations. And you know, it checks a lot of boxes of the things that that we like to own. It's a very recognizable brand. It's almost synonymous with with the category, you know, do-it-yourself moving. There's nothing like having thousands of trucks driving all around the country with free advertising for for yeah. for your business. You know, they build up this network of lo- locations that's irreplaceable, which means, you know, they have a higher utilization of their trucks uh, across the country and it's a very steady business. People they need to move you know, even if there's a recession, sometimes sometimes they have to move because of a recession. Uh, but the the business has been investing a lot of money in storage. Uh, that's very complementary to the truck business that they have. When you think about storing, you know, self storage business, and that's a business that has very high margins, even more predictable than the truck business. But as they were investing and bringing on these new facilities, it was penalizing short term earnings, but in our view, generating a lot of long term value. And, you know, the families express frustration with the share price, but by and large, they focus on running the business. And there's an incredible amount of value that could unlock in a business like that uh, when and if the family decides that 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 they want to unlock the value. We, we clearly think it's there, but we first and foremost want our businesses to focus on managing the business and much less on sort of managing investors. Yeah. Yeah. Key point: managing the business versus managing the investors, and and there and there there is there must be you know if you're a CEO of a company there must be you know undue pressure to beat your earnings estimate you know every quarter right and it's probably the same pressure we feel probably both of us 
mm-hmm. to beat the benchmark <laughs> every yeah. quarter, right? And and so hopefully the listeners here are, are getting an understanding of that this is not there is no benchmark for this, right? And this is this is uh, you know real people with a real process and lots of experience trying to create wealth for their investors, and and that's very different than this short term itis that we all tend to fall into. So is there any, is there another kind of, is there any other uh, stocks you'd like to talk about? I mean, you did mention the U-Haul and you mentioned the Fox, um, anything, anything that's interesting right now that you might want to touch on, or maybe even a business that you pass on, like the difference between a good business and that looks similar that you may be passed on. I mean, there's, I mentioned already that saying no is such a huge yeah. part of the business. So, you know, we pass on, uh, you know, the vast majority of companies, although many times we're passing on them sort of at this price, right? And I think that's that's the key component, right? Yeah. There's, it, it's, you need to, it, it's in many cases easy to identify this is a great business, you know, Visa and MasterCard or Google. I mean, the, you know, there, there's businesses out there that everybody can look at and say, well, sure, I'd love to have 30% margins or 50% margins and uh, generate billions of dollars of free cash flow. Everybody knows they're great businesses, but generally they get priced a lot like they're great businesses. Uh, you know, we're sometimes attracted to those areas that they, they don't quite fit in a box. Uh because if you can just look it up on a screen and see that they are in great margins and super attractive returns, they probably are, are priced in that way. Uh, I, I mean, just as as one example, we own a company called Reliance Steel and Aluminum. Now, if you think of Reliance Steel and Aluminum, right away, you probably think that's that's a pretty bad business. Steel is generally not on the list of all-time you know, creations of shareholder wealth over, over many, many decades. But they're not a steel company. They're a distributor. They distribute steel products that they get from mills and uh, cut those down into very small sizes and d- might deliver it to your local you know, auto body or machine shop you know, 24 hours later. And so they do $13 or $14 billion in sales, sort of $2,000 at a time, which if you do the math on that, that's a lot yeah. of orders. Yeah, yeah. But we get attracted to it because if you look and it's compounded kind of total return over almost every time period, including going back 25, 25 years, as sort of low to mid-teens. Uh, if you look at it uh, for 25 years to today, or 10 years from today, or since the crisis in today, it basically is outperform the market almost, over almost every time period. And the distributor business model is something that we do know well. You know, Distributors have created a lot of shareholder wealth over long periods of time, and we've owned many distributors in the past. They have a lot of attractive characteristics. And Reliance Steel is by far the largest in the category. You know, steel is um, is probably not going to get disrupted uh, anytime soon. It's something that we're going to continue to to need. And here you had a business that gets covered by steel analysts, and many investors probably gloss over because it's uh, miscategorized in our view. And yeah. so, if you're sometimes willing to do the work and really peel back and say, you know, what does this business do? Do they have hidden assets or hidden parts of the business that are potentially uh, attractive? And do a little bit of that extra work that wouldn't necessarily show up on a screen to, you know, identify the kind of hidden hidden gems or hidden sources of value. Uh, and, and, you know, some people say, 
it's dark and scary over there in the forest. I don't want to go look at that business because it's not inside my lane. And sometimes we say, we're, well, we're actually, what? Let me go look over there. There, there might be yeah. something there. Yeah, yeah, the watering hole might be empty, right? <laughs> we can all see what the, not, the the perfect watering hole is, but there's a lot of people at it, <laughs> you know? And so I, I think um, um, that really, that, that price piece is just, that insight there is just, it, it's obvious, but I think people forget it, right? Like companies like Google and Visa, all of those companies that everybody knows are obviously amazing companies. They carry prices that you have to pay such a high price for that your return set isn't nearly as high as you think it is, right? And so I think that often gets missed. And then because of crowd behavior and everything, often there's areas that are just left untouched. And and, and so, um, and I think maybe the those, do you find that there's more opportunity? So, um, there's lots more investors. I'm, I'm going somewhere here. I'm kind of dragging this question on, I guess, right? But there's lots, it seems to be a lot of participants in the marketplace. And there's this theory, this is efficient market theory, but there seems to, you know, when I think about the efficient market theory and more and more investors going into the system it, and with more and more information and more and more ability to trade, I actually see that as creating more opportunity to find pockets that are left behind. Does does that is that characterization hit home or is that sort of off? No, I, th- I think so, right? When when everybody is looking at something the same way or doing the same thing, or you're a passive index where you have to continue buying the same set of companies. And if they go up, you have to buy more. And if they go up, you buy more with no sort of risk management approach. The companies and investors that are willing to do something a little bit different uh, can create a lot of value. Uh, maybe it's something that, you know, a stock just isn't in the index for whatever reason. Maybe the fact that it's family run or family controlled. So it just doesn't have enough float out there. Well, we would look at that and say that's a positive. The index will look at it and say it's it's a negative because there's less float available for for a passive fund to buy. Well, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to us. You you'd like to have a family and managers that are invested alongside of you that are willing to, uh, you know, build and operate this business for for the long term. And you know, investors in the speed of information when you have, you can change your mind and click a button in a a half a millisecond and and make trades. It, you know when when there's a big negative surprise on what is otherwise a quality business, sometimes it can sell off you know dramatically, yeah. and you can have an opportunity to to build up a uh, a stake in a business that uh, you know very temporarily you know traded at a discounted price, and so we try to be you know I keep coming back to this theme right of trying to be flexible in how we approach value. Some managers, you know, have had a tremendous amount of success saying we only invest in this subset of businesses. They have to tick off, you know, 25 different boxes and we narrow it down to a very select group and we only buy those businesses. And some of those businesses we would love to own. Uh, don't don't get me wrong, they're they're amazing businesses. We want to own them at the right price, and we want to have a portfolio that's built to withstand lots of different market environments. And you know, for a lot of years there, that same group of sort of high growth companies, their multiples expanded and it kept expanding, and they got 
more and more expensive in our view, but all the managers, you know, look like heroes up until, you know, late 2021. And then things reverse dramatically. And the thing about those businesses in that group is that if you're wrong, most of the time you're not wrong by a little. You know, they sort of either take over the world and they become the next, you know, Apple or Microsoft or Amazon, or they miss dramatically because they didn't have an actual business model and there's no way that all of them could turn around and print you know, 30% margins all at once. If if you're investing in a, a Reliance deal or an Americo, like you you may, might make a mistake and pay a little bit too much to the business. There might be a bit of cyclicality there, but the underlying business has been uh, proven over, over many decades as a resilient business that, you know, dominates this category, has a nice growth outlook, and the underlying business fundamentals can continue growing and and help you out of that investment. If you pay a super high price, like if you bought Microsoft in 1999, is one of the greatest businesses on the face of the earth, but you have really poor performance for many, many years. And so the more investors that are uh, just trading stocks and aren't actually looking at the fundamentals, you know, does open up opportunities to do the work to dig into the numbers and try to make an assessment and buy the the stock like we're actually owning a piece of the business. You mentioned do the work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Willing to do the work. Now that's a big question. Okay, so um, price, super important. I believe price is super important. I mean, it's just from when I tell people like my my mother and you know, people that are not in the investment community, how important price is. Just picture two houses, right? They could sit right next to each other. One could be 30% cheaper than the other. It becomes attractive, right? Even though you don't like the front door or something, mm-hmm. right? So price is super expensive. So super important. So so when, um, this is my final question. Um, so when you're, and this is kind of maybe getting to the question that's more of the crowd pleaser, more of the, you know, the, like, tell me something big, right? So when you're looking at all these stocks through multiple market environments in different times for decades, I am sure there are times, and you have all this IP and all this knowledge of these businesses and these management teams and all the things you've learned. I'm sure there are times when your opportunity set looks amazing, when you are when you wish you could buy everything. And I'm sure there are times when your opportunity set looks ridiculously selective and you and you can't find anything. And I equate that with whether the market's overvalued or undervalued. Now, that might be a naive statement. Like if the market were overvalued, you don't want to invest anything. And if you find lots of opportunities, the market's probably undervalued. Is that a safe statement in what I just made there? And then secondly, are you finding lots of opportunities today? (laughs) In our view, you know, the market, you know, is priced to deliver, you know, probably uh, low returns from here. And I say that not from a top-down market direction, but from looking at lots and, you know, dozens and dozens and hundreds of businesses and say, what kind of forward rate of return would I expect owning this particular business? And then coming to the conclusion of, well, that that generally just isn't that attractive, uh, at least at this price. I still love to own the business, great business, but it's priced for low rates of return. And if you just do that across broad swaths of the market, Pretty quickly, you look around and say, "Well, there's not a, a a huge pile of screaming bargains here." You know, that's different if it's 2008, 2009, or you know, during March of 2020, when you look around and and you just see, you know, businesses everywhere, and just have the courage and conviction to to buy the ones that you think will will make it through to the other side and continue, you know, compounding wealth. 
But we look at lots of businesses on a bottom-up basis, and many of them are priced for returns that we don't think justify the risk uh, associated with with those investments. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't though take a market bottom for us to be fully invested. We're we only need a handful of very select opportunities. You know, we tend to run a, a somewhat concentrated fund. We're diversified in the total number of names, but the top 10 positions tend to be pretty chunky positions because when we find interesting ideas, we want to make them count. And those ideas, you can find them even if the market's at all-time highs. I mean, if you go back in the, the, the firm's history, we were essentially almost fully invested, pretty close to fully invested in, in, 99, in 2000, right before the market crashed. And so there's time periods where you say, there are bargains everywhere. I just need to have done the work ahead of time and the courage to go out to play offense like we discussed earlier and go out and scoop up those bargains and wait for sanity to return to the market. There's other time periods though when you say broad swaths of the market don't look particularly attractive and I need to be really selective in the types of businesses I'm willing to to, to buy right now at these prices. The good news is, is that if you have flexibility you can use that flexibility to find a few of those bargains. So despite a market that we look at and say, there's a lot of risk out there in the market, we have you know buckets of the portfolio and positions that we're extremely excited about. And at some point, you just have to sit back and say, I, I'm good. I like the businesses that I own. I think they offer very attractive rates of return. I think management teams are taking steps to unlock value. And... It, it, the, the correct answer is you, so you, you. Sometimes the correct answer is you got to invest. Sometimes the other correct answer is, you know, I need to be very selective in the ones that I buy and and avoid these big areas of the market. And you can win just by sort of avoiding the, those disaster areas. And we've still been able to find, you know, those pockets of value. But it would be very hard if you told me I had to be, you know, benchmark plus or minus to say, well, I'm going to deliver attractive returns from here while managing risk, because it's 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 not that type of environment in our view. I, I think it's safe to say that there is not an index that represents what you do. Mm. And that's a good thing. <laughs> and and uh, I think it's very interesting um, that you kind of touched on a point that I've been feeling lately, which is, you know, we're always agonizing over our performance and what the, what happens in the world, right? You do the work, you do all the work you do, you lay the portfolio that makes the most sense down and you invest in it. And it, you know, is decades of research and all, all the stuff that we do to build the best portfolio. And then the world will do what the world wants to do. <laughs> and it almost takes a couple decades to get Zen with that separation of the work you did and the quality of the work you did and the result that happened, which may or may not make sense. Right. And and so I think that's a, an important point that you kind of touched on there. And I think and and I think the other thing is, is that you don't need a you don't need a market that's undervalued or overvalued to make good investments. And th and that whole emphasis we all have on you know is, is the market overvalued or undervalued? I mean, how many articles and stories do you hear about that? And it's it's not that important. What's probably more important is the breadth of the opportunities and the differences between the good opportunities and the bad opportunities and where everybody's invested and in is there a, a a watering hole that's empty, right? Um, and so that's really good color. So can I summarize from my notes what we talked about here? Because we did 
I think we I think we did a great job, or you did a great job creating um a a um sort of the feeling of Yachman, the difference between indexing and and fundamental long-term investment management. Um, and that this this is not a a, a a tool to be used to gain access to exposures that you really are managing money for people to try to grow their wealth and and you're doing that in a very conscientious and experienced way and so but to give people some bullets here this is what i wrote down and you can tell me whether this hits home so first of all i think what's really unique about yachman is that you have decades of experience and that experience is really like the intellectual property of our industry, you know, that your fund is very flexible, that you're not stuck in a box, nor do you have to buy certain things you don't like, and that you're able to move to areas because the market is always changing, that the fund is heavily risk managed, and that risk management comes in the names and the fundamental analysis of the securities you own, and that everybody at your firm is a generalist, so you don't get stuck in in one industry or one way of thinking. Is that about right? I think so. I think uh, that the point, you know, our, our investor, we tend to attract sort of like-minded shareholders and investors because we are, we are different. You know, we're a boutique, you know, few handful of investment team, you know, managing assets in, in, in Austin, Texas. Uh, that's a long way away from the hubbub of, you know, New York, New York City. But in our view, it's a big advantage. We get to focus and think independently and invest the way that we would invest our personal capital, because a lot of our personal capital uh, is in the funds. And we we don't try to force it, I guess I would say. We go where the value is. We're very patient and waiting until we get very obvious uh, investments. And if you wanted a manager that is that is sticking in a very specific style box, uh, we tend to self-select away from those type of investors. But we we really think, and it is backed up by our three decades of history, that in order to uh, produce solid risk-adjusted returns over a full cycle, uh, put up good absolute returns and and you know beat secondarily sort of beat the benchmark. You need to act and think differently. And the way that we invest, our focus on downside protection, risk management, uh, it tends to shine in more difficult periods. And so a big part of our success over many years is during those more difficult environments. And I think our shareholders uh, and the the types of investors that are attracted to us look at the the world and say, you know, I, I'd love to get equity like rates of return, but I'm worried about, you know, risk number one through a hundred. There's a lot of risks out there in the world that I want a manager who thinks about risk. And I think last year was a, a good reminder. It's been a long a cycle, but we've continued investing the same way we've been investing for the last 30 years. And uh, for us, it's exciting. It's, a, it's an exciting time. We like the way that we're positioned. And I think the investors who understand the benefits of that kind of approach, you know, tend to get attracted to, to a firm like Yachman. Well put. Adam, this has been uh, very informative for me. I really appreciate the time that you've given us. And I 
even more so appreciate that you actually that your fund exists and that there are still bottom up funnel fundamental investors that do the work uh and uh, that are willing to think differently and are not you know not not that you're not conforming but that that you're willing to um be you're just willing to do the right thing for clients that's the way i put it so i thank you Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for your time and thanks for having me on. It's been it's been a, a good experience. Thanks. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The information does not constitute advice or a recommendation of any specific investment, mutual fund, or mutual fund company. Before making any investment, you should carefully seek independent legal, tax, and regulatory advice. In particular, you should seek the advice of a licensed financial advisor regarding the suitability of the investment product, taking into account your specific investment objectives, financial situation, any particular needs, and your ability to assume the risk and fees involved before investing. This podcast and presentation are for informational purposes only. Frontier assumes no liability for any action taken in response to listening to this podcast. Frontier Asset Management is not affiliated with any specific fund company. The views and opinions expressed by each speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market and other conditions and Frontier disclaims any responsibility to update such views. Investors should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. For this and other information, please call 800-548-4539 or visit amgfunds.com for a free prospectus. Read it carefully before investing or sending money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The views expressed represent the opinions of Yachtman Asset Management LP as of the date of this recording, and they are not intended as a forecast or guarantee of future results and are subject to change without notice. Any sectors, industries, or securities discussed should not be perceived as investment recommendations. Any securities discussed may no longer be held in the fund's portfolio. It should not be assumed that any of the security transactions discussed were or will provide to be profitable or that the investment recommendations we make in the future will be profitable. For more information about Yachtman Fund, including important risks, please go to amgfunds.com backslash Y-A-C-K-X. AMG Funds are distributed by AMG Distributors, Inc., a member of FINRA backslash SIPC. Mm -hmm.